what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. And welcome to the caregiver community. This is an educational forum for family caregivers where we're holding conversations about caring for our aging parents and for ourselves. My name is Jane Everson and my co-host is Frances Hall. How are you doing today, Frances? I'm just great. That's good to hear. Frances and I began the caregiver community because we are two of approximately 10 million adult child caregivers in the United States, people just like our listeners who are caring for aging parents, but also caring for ourselves. Some adult children live near their parents, and others live hundreds of miles away. Some parents live in their own homes, and others live in residences designed specifically for people who are aging. No matter where your parents live, visiting them in their own home provides adult children with an opportunity to observe their parents and to discuss safety concerns. In this session, we're going to be talking about some tips and tools to consider when you are visiting your parents, no matter where they might live. Our guest today is Dr. Sue Frigoletti. Dr. Frigoletti is an associate professor and an academic field coordinator in the occupational therapy department at Lenore Ryan University, which is located in Hickory, North Carolina. Sue holds a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy, a master's in gerontology, and a doctorate of health administration. She's been an annual speaker for ACAP Hickory, where she shared her expertise in areas of how to find reliable resources on the internet, what to look for when visiting mom and dad, and strategies for preventing falls. Sue is married with one son, and she is also an avid motorcycle enthusiast. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today, Sue, and thank you for helping us learn more about this important topic. I'm happy to be here. Sue, Jane had just talked about that a lot of a lot of adult children live quite some distance away from parents and so see them infrequently. Holidays often mean that visits with families and those of us who are adult children um, come into play and that it brings opportunities to observe parents in their own homes. What are some things that we could look for or should maybe look for when we're visiting mom and dad? There's actually a few different ways that you can look at that. First recommendation that I would make, though, is to try to spend a few days before or after the holidays to spend a little bit more time with your family. Um, The actual holiday itself may be a little bit too stressful to see what a regular everyday home situation would be for your loved one. What you may want to look at, though, are things that are physical in nature and then things that are environmental in nature. So taking a look at mom's ability to ambulate, to walk around the house. Is she tripping and falling? Are there any issues with her vision? Are you noticing that she is not dressed as she used to be? Maybe she's disheveled and she normally is dressed extremely uh, primly. Are we dealing with issues with environment? Is this a super clean house that all of a sudden looks like a hoarder is living there and there is clutter everywhere and things to trip over? So you want to look for anything that seems to be a change in normal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. What are some questions that we ought to be asking or topics that might be addressed to help the adult child better understand the parent's situation and needs? You're going to want to ask a few questions, especially if you live further away from them, about what their daily life is like. Who are their friends? Who comes over? Who are their neighbors? Where do they go to the grocery store? Where do they go to the pharmacy? It's good to find out who does their um, medical work. Who is their physician? Who do they prefer to go to the hospital for? 
Um, you're going to want to ask some questions about what they're doing every day. Um, I think it's really hard when you don't live close by, you can't tell, are they spending the day in front of the television or are they actually getting out of the house and driving more than you might realize? Mm-hmm. So you would want to look at those types of things. Okay. The, that's some really good, some really good guidelines on that. Um, what about, a lot of times we hear adult children talk about that they get this information, but then what do they do with it? How how do we know when a parent really needs additional help or when they really are okay? How, how do we know that? How, are there some guidelines to look for? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. The first thing I say to any um, caregiver is, can you sleep at night? Mm-hmm. If you see anything and it is bothering you at all enough that you're losing sleep at night, it's something that you need to pursue. So if it's something that's nagging you, you need to pursue that. Your gut reaction is That's always a strong advice. one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The other thing, though, that you can take a look at is I would ask their friends that see them more often. A friend will always come up to you and say, I've been a little bit worried about your mom. And that's yeah. something that, again, someone that sees them on a more consistent basis. The other thing that I like to recommend, honestly, is if you can convince them to do this, Schedule a doctor's appointment while you're there. Schedule some time to go pick up the meds and see the pharmacist while you're there. Anyone else that might be able to give you some information. If you're going to do anything medical, you will have to have a HIPAA release where the physician would be allowed to speak to you about your loved one's care. But I think that it's something that it's good for them to know who the um, other caregivers are that are even outside of the daily situation. Mm -hmm. Because then that way they may be able to be a little bit more honest in front of you and you might hear things that have been said before that the uh, your loved one has not been willing to hear. Right. So right. good, good information. And what about places that we can go um, to really help determine what the needs are, and if there are more resources? Are there any places beyond what you've just what you've just mentioned? Um, there are some people that are living outside of the day-to-day situation, and you're, you know your loved one's far away. You may consider care or case management. It's interchangeable terms, but it's somebody that you may hire to do what you would do if you lived 15 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So, and that would be somebody that might even go to appointments with them, is going to help to coordinate with the medical care provider to be able to say this is maybe they need home health now, or they need someone to come in and help to clean their home. So you have some professional options. Those are not options that are typically covered by any sort of insurance or Medicare. So that is a private pay option. But some people, if you're able to accommodate that, find that that's really helpful to say, I feel comfortable having a professional take the lead and, yes. and give me the advice. Especially if it allows your parent to stay in their own home for a longer period of exactly. time. Exactly. And sometimes that may actually be a much more uh, cost-benefit you know, mm-hmm. to do it that way versus to wait for something negative to happen and then you're dealing with consequences at that point. Right. The other thing that I think um, is important is to just... Um, Make sure that when you look at resources, start with the physician. Start with, do we need to have home health come in? If there is a physical concern of any sort, bring a professional in and go ahead and say, okay, you know, I really need to take a look and let someone who is objective. We're not objective as the, as the caregivers. We, we are always going to think mom's worse off than she is because we're worried. So why not have the physician bring in home health and say, let's see, how how does someone else who's 
not nitpicking every single little thing that mom's doing. Let's see how they think things are going. So I would always recommend pulling a professional in. That is something that can be covered by insurance or Medicare. If there's a considered decline, it is perfectly appropriate to go in and have an assessment done. It does not mean that they have to have continued therapy or continued nursing intervention, but it does mean that we can make a an assessment of where are they right now and do they need intervention. That is perfectly appropriate to have done. Because I know so so often we as the adult child, as you sort of said a minute ago, we come into it with all kinds of emotion and possibly not so much a real eye of what is really going on because it's clouded by our emotion. Well, and it's also clouded by previous judgment. of what is going on and saying that she's not the way she was. That doesn't mean that she's now unsafe. Oh, good point. Just because she's different doesn't mean that it's a negative difference. Mm -hmm. But anything that's different to us is going to automatically come across as negative when it's not what we're used to. Go back. You talked about, and I know the term geriatric care manager or geriatric case manager, either of those terms you said interchangeable. Where could people go to learn more about that or to find out who to pull in, who's in their area? I do know that most area agency on aging have resources related to that where they may have a list of local providers. Um, But honestly, I have used Google more than I've used anything and just gone ahead and looked at a geographic location and looked for geriatric case or care manager. And you will usually find private providers that will pop right up. I would recommend you interviewing a few of them. You've got to have someone that you feel that you can have a strong, open communication with. And also it needs to be somebody that your loved one likes. Because if they don't, we're not adding to the communication process. So it's got to be somebody that everybody feels they can communicate with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good information. Good information. Let's switch up a little bit and talk about falls in the home. I know that falling is more common as we age and falls in the home are unfortunately all too common as we Mm -hmm. age. Are there some common health conditions or medications that we should be aware of that may contribute to falls? Um, In terms of medications, um, you need to go ahead and take a look at anything that has a risk factor for dizziness, um, for lethargy, any type of fatigue causing things, um, anything, a lot of times blood pressure medications. Mm -hmm. It isn't that in and of itself it's a problem, but if they're not at the direct dosage, we could have a dosage issue and cause that. Um, In terms of conditions, a lot of visual issues if you have macular degeneration, if you have cataracts or glaucoma. Of course, if you can't see well, you're at a higher risk of either bumping into something to fall or actually having a little bit of a balance issue as a result of decreased vision. You can be dealing with neurological issues, um, and especially if anyone has a history of stroke or has Parkinson's, for example, or even any sort of a dementia can cause an issue. Anything that causes you to not be able to assess your environment when you're moving in it can cause an issue. Um, Anything that causes strength issues will lead to increased falls. Um, So anything, of course, everybody has arthritis, I think it seems, and that's, of course, always a risk factor. Anything that has to do with your joints and and that might cause some instability. Mm -hmm. So those are probably the biggest ones. Okay, and of course, many people as they age may have more than one of those conditions. Yeah, comorbidities are huge, exactly. And I think that typically... 
every time you add one more, you're going to be at a higher risk. So any if you're taking more than one or two medications, you probably are at a higher risk for falls mm-hmm. because you're dealing with multiple things at that mm-hmm. point. Okay. If we think or if we know that our parent is at a risk or a higher risk of having a fall because of medications or conditions, what are some things that we as the adult children can do to help prevent or reduce falls? You can look at it, one, from an environmental standpoint. If we know that they're going to have a hard time scanning their environment for anything that they might trip over, do we have clear pathways in the home? Have we gotten rid of the throw rugs that we can trip over? Have we um, dealt with a stair issue in the home, for example? A lot of times stairs is one of the biggest issues, and is there a way to have them be on one level versus being having to go up and down stairs consistently? Sure, that's huge. Um, anything that you can do to avoid things like stepladder use. So there are things in um, areas that you can reach easily. That's something that would be of importance. Um, The other thing that you can do is there are physical things that have been proven to help with fall reduction. Anything that involves strengthening and balance training is very good. And that doesn't have to be specifically from a professional. We have a lot of yoga, tai chi, things of that sort are excellent um, things that can be done. A lot of senior centers have great exercise programs that people would really benefit from. Even if it's chair-based, it's still strengthening-based. Anything that strengthens your trunk, strengthens your core, can be a big help to be able to help to reduce the possibility. The other thing that you're looking at doing, and this may sound a little bit crazy, but you can actually have professionals help to teach someone how to fall. Um, sometimes, I've heard about that. Talk about that a little bit more. <laughs> there actually are techniques that you can use that help to reduce the risk of injury. The fall itself is not typically the problem. The problem is the injury that results from the fall. So anything that you can do, it's the outstretched hands that cause the wrist fracture. Mm-hmm. So are there ways, actually, if you think about wrestlers and people that do karate and things, you watch them fall a certain way onto the mat that is designed to keep them from getting wrist fractures and ankle fractures and things of that sort. So there are ways that you can teach people how to fall. I would recommend a professional do that. That's not something you practice on your own, but it is something that you can do as a way to help to prevent to prevent the injury that comes from the fall. Yeah, when you were talking about that, I was thinking the football player. Exactly, and they learn how to fall on their side right. and not on the outstretched arm. Mm-hmm. And, and just learning how to do that um, better can make a big difference. And it also gives that older adult a sense of control I was going to take, over the situation. Takes away some of the fear of falling, it which I, I think is very real. I, I know even just myself, I am much more timid on the ice or getting out of a bathtub than I would have been even 10 years ago. Exactly. What about therapies, resources, aids, other kinds of uh, assistive add-ons for people who are prone to falling? I think that you know your typical interventions from a therapy standpoint may be physical or occupational therapy. Physical therapy may specifically address um, ambulation capabilities and l- lower extremity strength, for example. Occupational therapists will deal with um, it from some upper extremity core strength, um, maybe being able to make sure that the assistive devices that are being used are being used properly. Mm-hmm. And also the OT is the one that will go into the home and do a home evaluation for you to be able to make sure is everything as accessible as it can be? Are as many of the environmental risk factors reduced as much as possible? Mm -hmm. So those are your two main disciplines that typically deal with fall situations. Mm -hmm. Although there are times 
that uh, cognitive therapy is also utilized from the standpoint of when you have someone with dementia, for example, of are there ways to have reminders in the home if they're able to still handle that? Mm-hmm. Um, we may even come in as occupational therapists, and sometimes you need to label, don't go upstairs. And you put the sign right there on the stairs, and it's a way to help them remember. Or you put the big sign on the walker that says, use me. (laughs) And then that way they know, oh, that's right, I have this walker I'm supposed to use. And once they start to use it, they know how to use it properly. But they just forget that it's there because they're just going to go about their day. So anything that you can do related to that really helps as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of the aids you mentioned, like a walker or a cane, learning to use those or getting over the, um, maybe not even the fear, but the indignation of having to use one? <laughs> there is some stigma associated with that, um, and I have done everything to try to get rid of that with different patients. I have even uh, decorated walkers and done whatever I can do. Absolutely. But any type of ambulation aid, your, your canes, your walkers, your hemi walkers, the, the, the really cool-looking canes that have the four feet on them, uh, the pronged canes like that. Um, one of the biggest issues with those is you can buy them over the counter. And so you can go into any discount store and you can buy a cane, but if you're not taught how to use it properly, it could actually be detrimental to you. Yes. So I would honestly recommend that you have at least a single visit with a therapist to be able to have them show you how to properly use it so that it isn't used as a way to cause more falls. Because if you use it improperly, you can trip right over a walk or anything. And they're designed to be an aid. They're not designed to do the job for you. So anything that if you're going to start to use those kind of devices, then you may also need to look at, do I have kind of a home exercise program? Do I have something that I'm doing to at least try to maintain the strength I do still have? You also may want to look at upper extremity strength because if your arms are not strong enough to pick up that walker all day long, then again, it's going to be something you might end up tripping over. So you do need to have enough strength and stability to be able to use those devices safely. Good, good, very good recommendation. What about reachers and grabbers? Yes, those are great. You need to be, those are a little bit easier to pick up from the store and use on your own. The reachers are wonderful. There are many different types of reachers, and those are any, that a reacher is basically a grabber that you can use to get into the top shelf when you can't reach it without having to use the dreaded step stool. So, but when you're choosing those, again, you have to have enough grip strength in your hands to, you may be careful, can you, it's one thing to pick up the tissue box from the top shelf, it's another to pick up the two pound jar of pickles. So are we picking up things that we can actually handle? Some of the grippers have um, a stickier base than others on the grabbing handles, Mm -hmm. so it's something to consider there. And also the actual grabbing piece itself, the, um, the hand piece that you actually grip, can have different sizes. It can have different amounts of foam on it, for example. So you need to find one when you play with them in the store actually play with them in the store and try to pick up things in the store before you purchase it and say, is this something that I can grip and maintain a grip to be able to get something off a shelf? Because if you can do it for about a minute, then you know you'll probably be okay. Good. Great examples of things that we can work with our parents on. And I like the recommendation of working with a professional to make sure you've got a good fit. Definitely. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. 
All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. I remember, too, during one of your presentations to ACAP that you talked, and this is kind of going back a little bit, but even that when you stand up from a chair or get out of a bed to take some time and sort of get steady before moving. Right. A lot of medications especially cause what they call orthostatic hypotension, and that is where you may have that um, sense of dizziness upon initially rising from a chair or going from laying down to sitting up in a bed or going straight to standing up. And we tend to move quickly in this society. We are not ones to take our time. And if you stand up too quickly, your head kind of swims is is what this is going to feel like. And that is a traditional area that many people fall at that point because maybe the chair behind them isn't that stable or the bed is actually hospital beds roll. And I have had patients who have had issues with the bed rolling when they have fallen back onto the bed. And so sitting, if you're going to come from laying down to sitting up, just stay sitting for 15, 20 seconds. Give your head a chance to to get straight again. And again, when you go to stand up, before you step away from that support that was right behind you, just stand still. We're not talking even for a full minute, just 10 or 15 seconds to just get your bearings and then keep going, you will reduce your risk of falls significantly. So some some of these things are just such common sense kinds of things. If we just stop and think about it, some of it is devices. but Right, really and a lot of it is simply slowing down just uh-huh. a very small bit. But right. again, that's not something that comes easily. That's something that oftentimes um, we need to get our, our friends and our neighbors all to help support us being reminded that we have to slow down a little bit. Right. And I'm thinking also incorporating some of those things into our lives before we actually need them. Anything you can do to develop the habit ahead of time is a good thing. It's no different than if you're able to build the house before you get older, building the house where it's accessible before you get older. Why don't put the French doors in now? Don't wait to put the French doors in when you need them. So anything you can do to be proactive is a very good thing. Good. Excellent. Um, we hear a lot about aging in place, and of course we're talking about the home when, when talking about aging in place, but what exactly does that mean? And how can we as adult children support that concept for our parents? Aging in place is the concept that I would like to reside in my own home, and that's my place, so therefore I would like to age in my place. Um, stay there as long as possible. And stay there as absolute long as possible, as long as I can be independent and I can be safe. Now, the nice thing is, is independent is something that you can bring in a lot of outside resources to help. Um, The nice thing is, is that I think we are getting more and more of a shift from Medicare reimbursement and things of that sort now that people realize it can be cheaper to help someone stay in their home than to have to go to a skilled facility. So there are more resources that are available now than there used to be for aids and things of that sort to come into the home to help. Oftentimes what a lot of people need just to be able to age in place is help during self-care activities that are the most dangerous, such as getting in and out of the tub and when things are wet and being sure that someone is there when they're doing their bathing activities. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something you can schedule someone to come in and they can do sponge baths on the days that they're not there and then they can be completely independent. It may be a transportation issue that keeps them from being able to age in place. If they do not have the support, if they no longer drive, 
that makes aging in place much more difficult because then you need to have resources to be able to help with things like grocery shopping and getting to doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. and even doing maybe a leisure activity every once in a while. It's important that they have access to that. Um, And so depending upon where you live, of course, in urban areas, public transportation is something that can definite consideration. But when you are in rural areas, it can be very difficult to find external support for transportation. So that's something that is a, a, a constant barrier to aging in place. But um, what you're going to want to take a look at is, especially if you're not there, it does make it harder to help support aging in place because you have to have other resources that are available to help with these types of physical things. I talk to a lot of older adults that if they wish to age in place, everyone maintains a skill set for something. And it's important to kind of maybe take a look at all of your neighbors and is there someone that can still drive? Well, that's the that's the designated driver for the for the neighborhood and that's the one that takes everyone grocery shopping once a week. But maybe your loved one is the one that cooks the best and she helps to make the meals for the ones that can't cook very well anymore and helps put them in the freezer because she can't get to the grocery store, but she can cook. So can we kind of pool our capabilities together and help each other to age in place? And that's something that we see quite often, especially in senior living communities, that people will work together to be able to support each other to age in place. But what a great concept, even in the neighborhood, to be able to do that. Definitely. It's important... The, the largest thing is that it's, it's your home is where you're comfortable. Any time that you have to change to any sort of a residential setting, um, institutional type setting, you're never going to have it be the same as your own home. And honestly, from a functional standpoint, especially for someone with dementia, they will stay the most functional in their home, which is their um, normal environment that they will have residual memory regarding. So if you take them out of their own environment, they are more disoriented. They are not able to function as well. So if you want to maintain the most residual function in someone with dementia, keeping them in their own home is the best chance that you have for them to maintain some sort of uh, regular activity of daily living that's so routine to them that they don't have to think about it still. But you said something at the very beginning, and that was as long as they can be safe. Right, and it's important that's why, I mean, the, the use of things such as um, personal response devices, such as the lifeline, the I've fallen and I can't get up, those are important things that, um, especially if your loved one wants to live alone and age in place alone, is, of course, we know it's more safe if there's more than one person in the house that will eventually show back up and see if you fell down the stairs and you couldn't get up. So it's important that there are either external sources that are put into place, but then also just uh, common sense things. Uh, All the siblings, each one calls mom once a day at 3 o'clock, and mom knows she has to answer the phone at 3 o'clock, and it reassures everybody mom's good today. You know, or mom has to call and say, I'm not going to be home at 3 o'clock. I'm just letting you know I'm okay. You've got to do whatever it takes so that there is a safety routine in place. Right. You've addressed this a little bit, Sue, but do you have any any tips for talking with parents when either you as the adult child or as a professional think that living in place is just no longer an option? It's a tough conversation to have. I think the number one thing to keep in mind is that you're dealing with an, an adult, an adult who has the right to be spoken to as an adult, and I think it's very hard 
to sometimes feel like you're taking on the supervision role and you almost want to speak to them as if they're a child because you're honestly usually because you're so scared for them that you take a very stern approach and you're, but mom, we just can't do this. But it's important to go ahead and say, I need to discuss, discuss your fears, discuss the fact of this is what I'm seeing. Stick to the facts. I'm concerned because in the past three months, you've fallen 12 times. Twice we had to take you to the hospital and once you broke your hip. That makes me really, really worried about you being able to live here by yourself anymore. You can't argue with fact. And so, but also having that be a collaborative conversation. What can we do about this? Maybe there are resources that are available that you were not aware of that maybe, I'm usually, if the person is cognitively intact, your parents already thought about this. They're not not aware of the fact that they've fallen 12 times in the past couple of months and they went to the hospital. So sometimes it's that both sides need to have the conversation, but it's a scary thing for the adult to bring up because they're thinking, I don't want to be in the nursing home. And if I bring it up, is this going to start that ball rolling? But sometimes having the conversation, it puts the issues out. It can put um, a little bit more problem solving out to be able to work together to say, well, can we make this work and how? And what are the, but it's important to remember that if you're going to be the caregiver, and especially when you're going to maybe be far away, there's a few things that get to be non-negotiables. And that's a really tough conversation, but I can't have you home alone, mom, unless you're willing to have this aide come in three times a week to help you with the bath. That's a non-negotiable. I am not comfortable with you being home without this help. And it's okay to... Be reasonable with your non-negotiables, but to say these these are things that have to happen. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to to be on board with this with with this situation. And so, just being very open about that, and again, expressing your fears and the fact that this is coming from something you're uncomfortable with, and recognizing that that's not an easy thing for them to hear or for them to recognize. Yeah. Great, great advice. I, I like the idea of, of using facts. I always think yes. that's, that's critical. And I like the idea of involving your parents so that they have both dignity as well as some control exactly. over the conversation that's being had. But, you know, I'm wondering, as you were saying this, I'm wondering, too, if by chance when the adult child is that clear but that compassionate, but really focusing on the facts and focusing on safety, if there potentially is an element of comfort for the parent, as much as it may be a struggle for them because they recognize that maybe they are beginning to not be able to be in complete control, but I wonder if there isn't an element of, wow, so my my son, my daughter, is willing to step up to the plate and really help care for me. There are a lot of times I think there is some relief yes. with having the conversation and with getting the fears out on the table because you can handle what's on the table. If it hasn't been brought up yet, it's just something that's a constant concern. And maybe your your parent is the one that's not sleeping at night because they're so worried about themselves, and that has happened before. And I think getting things out on the table and just having open, honest conversation. Um, and again, allowing, I think, Jane, you talked about control, and that is what it usually comes down to. I may not be able to allow them to have complete control. Maybe there's a cognitive issue. Maybe there's enough of a physical issue that they're not willing to accept that we know is a safety issue. But as much control as I can give them, I need to. 
even if it comes down to, it can come down to the severely demented patient who gets to pick if they want the red sweater or the blue sweater. That's still giving them a sense of adult control over the situation. So anything that you can do to have them be involved, they need to be doing that. They're, they're still their own person, and they're still an adult, and they still have a right to have a certain amount of control over their life as much as they can handle. And so anything that you can do to remember any type of behavior issues, any type of anger reaction is typically out of a sense of feeling a lack of control. You grew, you know, you, you're a grown person, you've raised your kids, you've worked your whole life, you own your own home, you're doing all these things, and all of a sudden somebody else is trying to take control. And that's a really scary thing, or to know that you feel a sense of control being lost. Uh, you're going to react to that, and that's a normal reaction. So if you can remember as, as the adult child to say, how would I react if somebody said this to me and told me all of a sudden I couldn't live at my house? If you kind of think preemptively, you might be able to be better prepared for the reactions that you're going to receive. Good. 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 Thank you, Sue. You've covered lots of wonderful strategies and guidelines, lots of tips. Any final words of wisdom or any resources you'd like to make sure you leave our listeners with today? I think that it's just important. Again, I will go back to the sense of control and the sense of realizing that you're both adults and this is a tough situation and to just always be honest about that and to be um, honest enough about the issues that you're also seeing to pull in professionals when you feel it's appropriate, it's okay to not know. And it's okay to ask for help. And if you constantly remember that you're not in this alone, there's always someone else out there that you can send a lifeline to, it makes a big difference in all the parties involved feeling like they can live with the situation in the best that you can. So that's what I would say. Great. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the caregiver community. Francis and I hope that you have enjoyed as well as learned some things from Sue's presentation today about caregiving and about caregivers. This program is part of the MESH network of online shows and podcasts. You may learn more about the MESH and check out the other programs available for free at www.themesh.tv. On that site, you may also send us a question or a recommendation for future show topics using the Contact Us button. We also encourage you to find us on Apple iTunes, where you may subscribe to our show and make sure that you receive all future episodes automatically. You'll find a link to the MeSH website on our ACAP community website to subscribe. Francis, it's talking about ACAP community. Where can people go to learn more about it? I would love for people to go to our website, which is www.acapcommunity.org, and that is ACAP, A-C-A-P, like Adult Children of Aging Parents. So www.acapcommunity.org, or call us toll-free at 1-877-599-ACAP, which is 2227 or email us directly at info at acapcommunity.org. Thank you. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. 
All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard. 